What will we do when we arrive in heaven? I suppose part of the reason for that question is we don't know what heaven's like. And in a sense, we can only imagine, except there, there is a slight caveat to that. We don't need to simply imagine because we do have some information. The Bible says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Now that's not the end of the quote, but that'll do for now. Now think about that for a minute. What is the most magnificent, awe-inspiring, beautiful, breathtaking sight you've ever seen? That's nothing. What is the most beautiful, enriching, moving, challenging, inspiring sound you've ever heard. That's nothing. Uh, are you um, a dreamer? Are, are you a creative person? Are you somebody who lives in flights of fancy? I married one. <laughs> it's wonderful. I mean, she's quite often with me in the same room, but in a different world, usually of her own making. It's a thing of wonder. I, I'm sort of more into facts. My imagination is severely lacking, but I love creative people. I, I, I love seeing what people have imagined. I love seeing their dreams. I, I, I love them, the people who can envision something and make it happen. What is the wildest thing you've ever heard anybody imagine? What, what is the most exciting concept that you ever heard that anybody had? What was the most earth-shattering, world-moving idea that came down the pike? That's nothing. In fact, all we can say is this. You can take the wildest imaginations, the most magnificent sounds that ears have ever heard, add to that all the most wonderful sights that eyes have ever seen, and you're not even close to beginning to get to the threshold of what God has prepared in eternity for those who love him. However, the quotation does go on to say this, but God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. So we're not just left to imagine. And the problem is this, God has revealed in his word certain things about the eternal state. But the people to whom they were revealed, unfortunately, were limited by human language. And they didn't have the vocabulary really necessary to convey what it was they were seeing. So we're still 
only on the beginning of the threshold of what it is that God has prepared for us. We're coming to the final two chapters of the book of Revelation. We finished up talking about the lake of fire, the place to which old Satan, the dragon, the devil, you remember all those awful terms used for the personification of evil, and his henchmen, the beast from the sea and the false prophet, where they're cast into the lake of fire. That's something for us to, to, to try to grapple with, but it's really beyond our comprehension. But it does come home very forcibly when we were told that all those whose names are not written in the book of life will join them in the lake of fire. And whatever the lake of fire is, it is a place of eternal judgment. It is a place of eternal separation from God. That's where we finished up. What a joy it is to look on the other side of the picture and say, all right, we know what happens to those whose names are not in the book of life, but what's it like for those whose names are found there? Well, with that in mind, let's have a look into Revelation chapter 21 and 22. This is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples. Notice I emphasize the S there. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. Now, this gives us a little clue about what those whose names are in the book of life can anticipate. There will be, according to John's vision, a new creation. He says that he saw a new heaven and a new earth and the reason that there was a new heaven and a new earth is that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, Peter, in his second epistle, gives us a little more information on this particular event. Second Peter chapter 3, people were mocking or scorning the idea of Christ's return. Peter went on to say this when he reminded the people that the fact that Jesus was delaying his return was in actual fact a great act of grace giving more people an opportunity for repentance. But this is what he said in verse 10 of chapter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be 
either laid bare or burned up. Then the question is this, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And he gives the answer. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So, we've already been seeing that God will bring this world's history to a dramatic conclusion. I don't want to go into all that again, but in the place of that which he will find necessary to destroy, he will create new heavens and new earth. He is committed to a new creation. Now, the problem, of course, was this, that the original creation, when he evaluated it, was pronounced good or very good. We, we really have little idea of the sheer goodness, the sheer rightness, the sheer magnificence of creation in its pristine condition. All we're told is that God pronounced it good. All right. Now the fall entered. When the fall entered into the world through man's sin, a wrench was thrown in the order of creation. The word for creation, for the world that is created, is cosmos. And this word cosmos is the exact opposite of chaos. Cosmos, chaos. What God created was cosmos. The basic idea of it is an orderly, beautiful jewel or ornament. That's the best description we can have of the original creation in its pristine form. But when sin entered into the world, not only was human beings affected by it, but because human beings are inextricably bound up with every other aspect of creation, the whole of creation was affected. And something called the fall happened. Now, if when God created things originally, things were as they ought to be, what happened as a result of the fall was that the whole of creation is not as it ought to be. This, incidentally, is the best line of apologetic reasoning that I know today, because I've never yet anybody who won't agree with me that in this world things are not the way they ought to be. They will agree there's something wrong with something somewhere. Well, as soon as we say things are not the way they ought to be, we're assuming there was an ought, there was a right, there was a pristine, there was something as it ought to be. Now, this world of ours, this creation of God, warped and twisted and marred and spoiled comes under the judgment of God, and God has determined that it will come to an end when he has gathered his people from the wreckage, and when he has gathered his people from the wreckage and brought all things to an end, then he will do what he did in the first place. He will recreate. He will make a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be absolutely Right. That's probably the best we can say about it. It will just be absolutely right. Everything will be as it ought 
to be. Now, <laughs> you, can, you can let your imagination run riot. You can think of the greatest thing you've ever seen. You can think of the greatest thing you've ever heard. You can think of the wildest thing you've ever imagined. And you probably won't even begin to get to the idea of a magnificent creation that is just absolutely, intrinsically right and good by God's evaluation. That's what he says here. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then he adds, incidentally, and there was no longer any sea. Now, this business of the sea, the sea in Scripture, well, quite apart from anything else, it was that realm of the universe from which the beast came that caused so many problems. But more than that, the sea so often was seen as that which was unruly, that which was tumultuous, that which was always in a state of torment. It was almost a picture of that, that tumultuous, resistant, rebellious aspect of creation. That'll be done away with. Whether this is literal or metaphorical, we'll have to wait and see. But the idea is that there will be no more rebellion, there'll be no more tumult, there'll be no more resistance, for those things are passed away. Now, immediately John has got this idea of the new creation, his eyes focus on one aspect of this new creation. And the aspect of the new creation that begins to grasp his attention is called the holy city, the new Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit, the new Jerusalem. Now, what in the world does he mean by the new Jerusalem? Well, I think we have a clue to that in the epistle to the Galatians. You might want to turn to it. And again, you might not want to turn to it. But I'll turn to it anyway. There's a rather obscure part of Galatians chapter 4 that I'd like to try and unwrap for you in a few minutes. Verse 21 of Galatians chapter 4 says this, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. Is that clear? (laughs) Well... Paul thought he was clarifying something. Seems to me that he was uh, muddying the waters a little bit, but let's see if we can walk through it. What's the issue he's addressing here? The issue he's addressing in the churches of Galatia is that Paul has preached the emancipating message of the Christian gospel, that Christ died for our sins. 
and that if we will come to repentance and faith in God, God will, on the basis of Christ's death, forgive our sins and justify the ungodly, and we will be delivered from our sin, we'll be delivered from the consequences of our sin, and ultimately we'll be freed up from the presence of sin. This is the emancipating message of the gospel. Now, some people, particularly from a Jewish background, were very worried about this because they said, if you just say that somebody can repent of their sin and trust God because of Jesus, God will forgive their sin. They can just say, okay, I'm sorry, I believe in Jesus, and then they go back and live like the devil again. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. They said, you've got to keep the law as well. You can't just be saved by faith. You're saved by faith plus keeping the law. Now Paul is is dealing with that issue and, and he is absolutely adamant. We are not saved through keeping the law. We are saved by grace through faith. Now, in order to make this point, he uses the story of Abraham. Abraham had a wife, Sarah. Sarah could not have children. Sarah says, as they did in those days, all right, have a child by one of my handmaidens, Hagar. So he, she, he did, and Ishmael was born. Subsequently, Sarah had a son, and Isaac was born. Now, Ishmael was born of a slave woman, and Ishmael, born of a slave woman, was born a natural way. But Isaac, born of a free woman, was born in a supernatural way. Now, says the Apostle Paul, getting more and more complicated about this thing, in the same way that we set Hagar over against Sarah and Ishmael over against Isaac, we can set the earthly Jerusalem against the heavenly Jerusalem, the old covenant against the new covenant, and Judaism against Christianity. But for our purposes now, notice something, that he is saying on the one hand there's an old Jerusalem, but on the other hand there's a new Jerusalem from above. And it would appear that there's a similarity here between what John saw and what it is that Paul was talking about. What is Paul talking about? He is talking about the fact, now listen very carefully, maybe you're shocked to your system. He is talking about the fact that the new Jerusalem is not a place, that the new Jerusalem is a community of people. And that perhaps the thing that we struggle with most when we're trying to understand what the afterlife is like, what the eternal state is like, is that we tend to think of heaven as a place and we're asking questions all the time about what's it going to be like? All kinds of questions about will there be such and such a thing in heaven? Will we do such and such a thing in heaven? Will we be able to have such and such a thing in heaven? And we are looking at the eternal state. We are looking at heaven, if you like, as a place to which we go, in which there'll be all kinds of fun things to do. And we, we, just, wonder, we just wonder what we'll be able to do, what we'll spend our time doing. When perhaps that isn't the way to look at it, Perhaps the way to look at it is this, that what John is seeing is something that is a divine creation because it's coming down out of heaven. It is a creation that is a new community of people 
And this new community of people comprise the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Perhaps another way of looking at it would be to go a little further. And notice that John goes on to say that this new Jerusalem was like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, does that ring a bell? Well, turn back to Revelation chapter 19 for a minute. In verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous act of the saints. So who is the bride of Christ? Who is this beautiful bride? Well, if the Revelation 19 doesn't tell you, there's a clue in Ephesians chapter 5. And there we see that the church is seen as being rather like the bride of Christ. So, what are we seeing here? New Jerusalem is certainly a community of believers in Galatians 4. If we transpose that to Revelation, if we add to that that the, that the new Jerusalem is like a bride prepared for her husband, and we tie that into Revelation 19 and Ephesians chapter 5, we're beginning to get a composite picture here. That in this new creation, the focal point of this new creation is a community of belief. It is a community of believers. It is an entirely new community. Now, he goes even further and explains why this community is so special. Look at what he says in verse 3. Now, I'm back in Revelation 21. I have no idea where, where I left you. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So what is it that's so special about this holy city, this new Jerusalem, this community of the faithful? It is simply this, that God is in their midst. So we're not talking so much about a place to which we go. We're talking about a person around whom the community of faith gathers. And this person around whom the community of faith gathers is none other than God who is doing what he has been promising down through the ages to do. And do you know what he's promised to do down through the ages? He has promised to dwell among his people. Go back as far as Leviticus. Go through the prophecy of Ezekiel. Over and over again, you'll get this idea that the absolute ultimate experience for people in the divine creation is that they might be in the immediate presence of God himself and that he is a living, moving, and working among them. Does that excite you? The thought of actually being shoulder to shoulder with God. The thought of actually being in his immediate presence. To think that you might be going for a walk wherever it is we're going to be and you just bump into God. And he's got time to talk to you. How you doing? Well, you'll be doing fine up there, of course. During the Second World War, 
the king and queen of England, who have quite a lot of very nice properties scattered around the British Isles, were perfectly free to go anywhere they wanted to go. In fact, the parliament wanted to evacuate them to Canada because they said the worst thing that could happen to the British people would be if the king and queen were killed in the bombing. Now, London was subjected to what was known as the Blitzkrieg, where night after night after night after night, for weeks and months on end, the Luftwaffe came over and deposited thousands of tons of bombs on London. I have a picture in my home of St. Paul's Cathedral taken in the dead of night without flashlight because the whole night was lit like day with all the fires of everything burning and St. Paul's Cathedral standing silhouetted against it. But you know, the king and the queen refused to leave London. They insisted on staying in Buckingham Palace. And every morning after the bombing, there would be some of the first people to visit the people whose homes had been devastated, whose families had been blown to pieces. And you know, this was the most wonderful, wonderful morale booster. The king dwelt among us. He walked among us. He was with us. Well, it won't be the Blitzkrieg in the eternal state. It will be the community of faith and God working, walking, and living, and dwelling in our midst. This is what we have to look forward to. And we have absolutely no idea what it means. Think of all that you can think of about God. Dream of all you can dream of about God. All you've ever heard of about God. All that somebody has shown you about God. It's nothing. For eye has not seen and ears not heard, neither has entered into the imagination of human beings what God has prepared. For what he has prepared is his immediate presence and as the redeemed gathered around him. Not only that, This community of faith is going to be made up of all his peoples. That's the literal word that is used in verse 3. They will be his peoples. And that's a reminder of an expression that comes up over and over again in the book of Revelation. You remember what it is? That they'd be out of every kindred and tongue and tribe and nation. What a gathering this is going to be. What an incredible experience this is going to be to actually be there with blood-bought, redeemed people from every era, from every corner of the known experience of humanity. But the focal point is not going to be on them. It's going to be on God, who will live and move and walk among us. The old order has passed away, we are told. That's what it says. The old order has passed away. And with the old order, we are told there'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. What did those things have to do with the old order? They had to do with fallenness, didn't they? 
They had to do with fallenness. You remember that when human beings were introduced to paradise in the first place, they were told that all they needed to do was to live in loving, trusting obedience before God. He gave them the opportunity to prove that they would do that, and they very quickly proved that they wouldn't do that, even though he told them that if you eat of that tree, the day you do, you'll die. And Paul tells us, as by one man's sin, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. We've been subjected to mortality ever since. God says that this awful thing called death that causes so much pain, so much mourning, so much anguish, which is the wages and consequences of sin, will be finally and ultimately banished because that's part of the old order. And everything to do with the old order will be gone. Why? Because God says, I am in the business of making all things new. I'm in the business of making all things new. Think of everything you can that makes life ugly and mean and painful, discouraging, disruptive, decaying, disintegrating. It's all the old order. And it will all finish up in the lake of fire. And the new experience will have none of the things that hinder and spoil and mar. Now, having explained this, John then goes into a little more detail, and a very exciting thing happens in his vision. Notice now in verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, what's so special about that? Up until now, the personage on the throne, who is so utterly indescribable, you remember, has been strangely silent. And now he speaks. And if that is true, that the one who sits on the throne actually speaks, we better be all ears. What would the one who is seated on the throne, who is now in charge of the eternal state and is living among his people, what would he have to say? What would he have to say to the little struggling churches in Asia Minor to whom John is writing? What would he have to say to us 2,000 years later? Well, let's read it. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and new. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Here's the message from the one who sits on the throne. The one who will be the center of attraction and attention in the eternal state. In the midst of the community of believers. A statement of purpose. 
I am in the business of making everything new. He's doing it right now. He tells the people in the little churches in Revelation 2,000 years ago that he's doing it then. The Apostle Paul picks up on this idea and he says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But the making new that he's begun in their lives 2,000 years ago and in my life some 60 years ago and in your lives some whenever it was it is not completed until we pass through death into the eternal state and then he will say it's done it's finished I have now made you as you were intended to be but in the interim he says this is a faithful saying this is totally reliable aren't you encouraged by that Aren't you encouraged to know that God is absolutely committed to making all things new and the work that he has begun in you, he will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. And the ultimate of it is that one day you will be in his presence, transformed into his likeness in the community of the redeemed. Isn't that encouraging? That is a totally reliable statement from the one who sits on the throne. Not only that, he gives us a reminder as to who he is. He said, oh, by the way, just in case you're worrying if uh, I can come through with what I just promised, that I'm making all things new, let me just remind you, I am the beginning and I'm the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the origination and I am the conclusion of all things. Did you know that? God is the originator and God is the terminator of all things. Not Arnold. God is the originator and the terminator of all things. The beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And he it is who is absolutely faithfully committed to making all things new. Now then, this is what he says. He then extends an invitation. And this is so interesting. In the midst of this powerful statement, I'll make you new. I'll finish you this renewing work in eternity. This is absolutely reliable. I can do it because I'm the beginning and the end. And then this is what he says. If you are thirsty, if you are thirsty, you may come and drink freely of all that I have to offer. The question that I would ask is this. Thirsty for what? Thirsty for what? What's he talking about? He's talking about ultimate reality. Talk about ultimate reality. Are you thirsty for ultimate reality? Do you look at this world in which we live and say people are living a fantasy? I mean, we're actually literally talking about virtual reality. If that isn't an oxymoron, I don't know what is. Virtual reality. Because we've been told that man cannot stand too much reality. That somewhere deep down in our souls, we look at the world we live in and we say, is this 
all there is? Is this all there is? Where's the substance? Where's the point? What's it all about? Jesus, the one who sits on the throne, says, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm totally reliable. I'm making all things new. And if you are thirsty for ultimate reality, come to me and drink. I wonder what else we might be thirsty for. Purity. Purity. Just the idea of the sheer whiteness of his throne and the brilliance of his person. All the details of the sheer wonder of all that John tries to describe. It is so pure and it is so beautiful and it is so wholesome. Are you, are you so tired of the sordidness? Are, are you so tired of the way that things are being degraded? Are you, are you tired of what George Will calls, and I'm finding more and more people using this expression now, George Will originally called it the coarsening of the culture. Are you tired of the coarsening of the culture? Are you saying deep down, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just find something that had a touch of reality to it, something that had some purity to it, something that had some beauty to it. Are you thirsty for that sort of thing? You're thirsty for integrity because you're tired of all the lying? You're thirsty for some beauty because you're tired of all the ugliness? Are you thirsty for some security because you're so tired of being afraid? Well, you're thirsty. You're thirsty. Here's the picture of all things being made anew and their ultimate condition. And then the center of it all is the God who's the beginning and the end, who's making all things new, and he extends an invitation to you, and he says, you can come and drink freely. There's just one thing. There's just one thing. He who overcomes will inherit all this. He who overcomes will inherit all this. Now you'll remember the seven letters to the seven churches at the beginning. Every one of them ends, he that overcomes, I will give him. And you remember that the little churches that he's writing to, living out there in Asia Minor under Roman rule, where they're probably going to have to worship the emperor. If they're not already doing it, they soon will have to do it. And they'll have two choices, deny Jesus and worship the emperor or die. No, that's a pretty difficult choice. And Jesus is saying, look, I don't want people who renege. I don't want people who lie about their true convictions. I don't want people who will buy into all the immoral stuff that is associated with emperor worship and all the other pagan rituals. No, I am looking for people who will come and drink of me and find in me their heart's desire and the fulfillment and satisfaction of their lives and they will keep on keeping on until the end. They will inherit all this. And that's the word from the one on the throne. Oh, by the way, he says those who won't respond to this will finish in the lake of fire. And this 
is the second death, the ultimate separation from God. Now, John then turns his attention to a little more detail concerning the holy city. The reason for this is one of the angels, one of the angels who's kept popping up when they had the seven bowls, and I won't remind you of those things now because you're glad to be finished with them, but this angel pops up again and he says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. What is he talking about? Well, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, has now become the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Just another picture of this community gathered around the person of God himself. And he begins to start an incredible description of something that is indescribable. We don't have time to go into it, but it's all about glory and it's all about magnificence. It is all shining with the glory of God. Notice that it is built on the prophets and the apostles. Those are the foundations of this city, this bride of Christ. Remember that Paul will tell us in Ephesians that it is the church that is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Notice that he then is told to measure this new city. And I don't know if you've ever figured out the measurements here. He says in verse 16, the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length as wide and high as it is long. In other words, a cube. Dimensions, 1,500 miles high, wide, and long. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a cube. That is the mother of all cubes. <laughs> a cube. <laughs> now, I, I have a friend, in fact, I was, I was looking at a book he wrote just today. I was talking to him today. I actually learned about this because I didn't want to get into it. But, but he started calculating. He said, you know, Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. I'll go and prepare a place for you. So he starts calculating how many condominiums you could get in a cube that is 15,000 miles cubed. <laughs> well, between you and me, I think he's barking up the wrong tree. I think this is a figurative picture. Now, you, you may not agree, and of course, there's lots of room for disagreement here. I think this is another of those symbolic numbers that we find in Revelation. One other thing, be it as it may, is that he talks about all kinds of jewels being encrusted in the foundations of the city. I'm reading now to you from verse, what is it, 19 in chapter 21. Notice, he says, the foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, and all, all these things. Whatever the significance of this is, we cannot be certain. But one very fascinating thing is this. I understand that in the symbols for the, for the various tribes of Israel, they incorporated, and I was amazed to read this, they incorporated the signs of the zodiac. The signs of the zodiac. Now, I, I'm not into horoscopes. I don't buy all that stuff. I don't even bother reading horoscopes. All this Aries and Piskies and all these other guys, whatever you're born under and all, all that, that's all the signs of the zodiac, the 12 of them, remember? 
The 12 of them, the 12 foundations here, 12 apostles, 12 prophets, and this sort of thing. But each of these signs of the zodiac has a stone, precious stone. Is that right? Come on, those of you who know anything about it, you, you were born under what is Sagittarius? Is that, is that one of them? These guys I should have checked on this nonsense. But anyway, they, you're born under a sign, and then you have a stone that is your stone. Am I right? What's interesting is this. All the stones that relate to the signs of the zodiac are listed here in reverse order. In reverse order. And we think that John is probably saying, look, all this stuff about all this pagan religion, all this stuff about all these mystical ideas about the stars and the constellations ruling your life, that is utter nonsense. Let's turn it on its ear. Let's turn it right on its head and show that the real foundation is found in what the prophets and the apostles have said from the Lord, and it is the exact reverse of all that people in the pagan religions are saying. Well, I don't know if that's what he's saying, but there seems to be a good case for it. Now, in addition to that, he says, when we look at this community of faith, this community of believers, one thing we notice is this, that it's a very unusual city, because in those days, you never had a city without the center of it being a temple. You never had a city without the center of it being the temple because it was imperative that the guards of that city be worshipped, otherwise the city could not survive. But this city, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the bride and the wife of Christ, etc., 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 the community of faith doesn't need a temple. You know why? Because God himself is there. And there's no night there. And the very simple reason for it is this. There's no street lighting either. Don't need street lighting. Don't need temple. Because you see, it's all about the glory of Christ. It's all about the wonder of his person. And the whole thing about the eternal state is not where it is and what we'll do. The whole thing about the eternal state is, incredibly, we will be gathered into the immediate presence of the living God and the risen Christ, and we will spend an eternity in a new body ideally suited to an eternal, universal environment a body that is as suited to that environment as your present body is suited incredibly to this environment in order that you might spend all eternity in communion, in fellowship, in beauty, in glory, in integrity, in worship, in gainful employment, and exploring the sheer wonders of the universe. Now, forgive me that I can't give you more detail. I'm sorry I don't have brochures. But we don't need them. Because if you believe that God is who he is, and Jesus is who he is, you don't need any more information. Because they know what they're doing. 
They were in a state of continuous existence before the worlds were made. They haven't missed a beat in between. And they are ideally suited to a universal, eternal existence, and they're inviting you to join them. And he said, if you're thirsty, that's what you're longing for. A little touch of reality, some beauty, some purity, some integrity, some honesty, some security. The things that deep down we long for in this shoddy, tawdry, disintegrating, degraded culture of ours that is coarsening by the day. You need to repent. And you need to yield to Christ. And you need to say, write me in your book and come and get me when you're ready. Do you know what all God's people would say? Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. You looking for his return? You looking forward to eternity? (laughs) Are you saying, oh, I am so looking forward to eternity, but want to get married first. Want to have children first. Want to make a million first. Want to see New Zealand first. Don't do that. Because it just shows that you're looking down the wrong end of your telescope. You see, because heaven isn't a place that is sort of like the best place you've ever been, only more so. (laughs) It isn't so much a place. It's a person. And a community of persons around him in a state of continuous, universal, eternal glory. Doesn't that sound great? As I say, eye has not seen, ear hasn't heard. Nobody's imagination has even got close to knowing what God has prepared for those who love him. Let's pray together. Father, we are such creatures of time, and we know you know this. We are such creatures of time that we have terrible problems beginning to grapple with eternity. We are so material that we struggle so much with the spiritual. Our difficulty is we are so earthbound and you don't criticize us for any of those things because you made us material, you made us creatures of time and space. But we are so earthbound that it is so difficult for us to begin even to contemplate an immeasurable expanse of experience without limits. We are so interested in where we're going and what we're doing and what we can get and what we'll have and what we'll be freed from 
it's almost a foreign idea for us to think that none of these things really matter because what you're offering to us is yourself and all that goes with who you are. So forgive us. Forgive us that sometimes we don't even try to transcend the temporal and the material. And that so often we don't even believe in the things that transcend our limited experience here. But Lord, just give us a really a, a, a sense by your Spirit that there is far more out there than we can ever imagine. And if we are thirsty for you and thirsty for all that is part of you, and we are willing to be held onto by you that we might overcome till the end, that you promise categorically we will inherit all this because you're making all things new including us but Father that word from the throne has such a solemn ring to it for you remind us that those who renege on these things those who reject these things will spend eternity not in your presence but we'll spend it in your absence. And that means separated from all reality and beauty and integrity and honesty and security and glory. And that is unthinkable. So while it is yet day, Lord, by your Spirit, draw us to yourself. Fill us with confidence that you receive us and forgive us and will continue the work you've started in us and increasingly build in our hearts that excitement about the fact that you will return. Finally put down your enemies and establish your eternal kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.